Last time we talked about, uh, we went through Luke 1, 1 through 4, uh, talked about Luke's reason for writing, uh, talked about the Gospels, some of the aspects of the Gospels, the different things uh, that they cover, the different uh, focuses, if you will. And uh, now we're we'll talking about, uh, we'll be going, starting through John 1, uh, we're not going to get through the first 18 verses, hopefully, prayerfully, we'll get through the first 13 be talking about a little bit about Christ's deity, a little bit about uh, him being, of course, God. And next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll be talking about his humanity and how that works with uh, his deity. And we'll also be talking about um, a, a great subject, eternal generation, which I think is important and is in the text, which but what I think a lot of translations obscure. And I think we need to get it back. And uh, we'll be talking, perhaps if we get to it next week, a little bit of an overview of an outline of Christ's ministry. So, we have that. Alright, so John 1, uh, starting in, in verse 1. So John, of course, takes his approach when he starts off his gospel. is a little different than the others. Uh, Matthew, of course, starts off with what? How does Matthew start? Genealogy, right? The point here is that the point is, is that Jesus is the rightful Davidic king. He's the one in line to the throne. That's the point. And Mark, Mark starts off with what? Anybody know? No, Mark doesn't. Mark starts off with John the Baptist ministry. John the Baptist. So there's like, there's no birth narrative, there's no eternity past, there's no there's no genealogy, just boom, jump right into it. Luke starts off with what? Jesus is uh, uh, how he came to earth as uh, how he came to earth as a savior. Okay, well yeah. There, yeah, the birth narrative's there, but actually before that... Uh, it's a letter to Theolopolis. Right, it starts off with the introduction, but at, yeah, yeah, it starts off with the introduction, but after that you have Gabriel appearing to Zechariah in the temple when it's finished turn to offer incense. And John starts off with eternity past. He starts off with a very high <laughs> view of God, and a very high view of Christ. So let's look at this verse. This verse that I think I would venture to say that most all of us have read quite a number of times, maybe even perhaps committed to memory. And of course we have it thrown up there on the screen. But would anybody just like to read John 1-1 for us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was Okay, thank you. Notice how I, I picked four translations to put side by side there. Notice not an ounce of difference in them at all. Not, a, not an ounce of difference. This is, I think, like I was saying earlier before we got started, one of those verses that, you know, translation teams are like, yeah, I think we're going to leave this one alone. Don't want to venture out too far on that. So, we'll... Uh, dig into it. So let's break this up piece by piece and let's see what John's trying to tell us. So, first phrase. In the beginning. What's John talking about? 
creation or God himself? Creation or God himself? Great. Other thoughts? Men. That's the when. The when, right? Yeah, definitely it is identifying a period of time. Maybe. And that Jesus was there. Yeah, well, yes, yes, he was definitely there. In the beginning, anybody have other thoughts about what, in the beginning, what John is referring to here? I mean, that goes Genesis 1, though. Yes, it does. Anybody, those of us who who know our word can see Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 here, can't we? These are the the word, these are the allusions, and not illusions, but allusion, or allusion, where it might not be a direct quote, but you will have maybe like a partial quote or words or ideas or concepts that are early, that are brought into the text and they come from another place in the biblical text. And there is such to where the audience, when they read it or hear it, their mind jumps to that passage and they recall that. So when you see in the beginning, what do you think of? Yeah. Creation, right? That's what you think of. That's that's on purpose. That's the point. Is that John wants us to think about that time. So in the beginning is, I would say, even before creation, right? Before there was anything, before the creation of the world. This phrase is it's denoting eternality. So, in eternity, right, at the beginning, like when everything was just starting as far as creation and talk about temporality and actual time, at that point and before that point, who was there? Who was there in the beginning? God, right? Was the, but what is the first phrase said? Word. Was the word. The Logos. The beginning was the Word. Now, much is made of this word, this word Logos, right? You, you consult, uh, you have to consult scholars and resources on this, and they and they talk about their their thoughts about it. Um, Stephen Wellen gives a really great kind of breakdown in a footnote in his book, God the Son Incarnate. He talks about what uh, different people thought about this word logos talks about for the Stoics in Greek Stoics the logos is reason it's an impersonal relational principle which is the cause for everything that exists that's what the Stoics thought the logos was now there is a and this is a person I referenced I believe referenced earlier uh, some weeks ago when we talked about the intertestamental period there was a Hellenistic, and when we think Hellenistic, we think what? Greek. Greek, right? A Hellenistic Jew by the name of Philo. And Philo thought of the 
thought of the Logos as a somewhat of a personalized force or a personified force which mediated God to the world. Not exactly a person, but something that mediated God, a force from God. And then you have Edersheim, uh, Alfred Edersheim, his, his book on Jesus is, is, uh, is uh, pretty famous, Life and Times of Jesus and Messiah. He talks about the, the Targums. A Targum is a Aramaic interpretation of the Old Testament. That's what it is. Okay, so don't let the odd word kind of just make you zone out. So a Targum is just an Aramaic interpretation of the Old Testament. And when they talk about the word, it's a word called running out of room already. Memorah. It's just basically God revealing himself. So there's a lot of ideas behind word, right? Logos and this word memra and the word. And there's different thoughts on what the word means. And so people will talk about how, people talk about how, you know, John is using this word to try to appeal to, to Greeks and, and so forth. And he's influenced by that. Yeah, maybe he's using that word, and maybe he knows that Greek people are familiar with this word, but I don't think he's influenced by it. Let me give you a quote. This is from Stephen Wellens' book, God the Son Incarnate. But it's been repeatedly and convincingly demonstrated that John does not think in terms of a Greek worldview, but according to the Bible's own terms, according to categories structures and framework of the Old Testament. And I personally think it's safe to default there. A biblical author may be aware of the secular worldviews and mindsets out there, and it's good to be aware of that, right? So we know where the world's coming from. But as far as John or any biblical author who's writing, in terms of the way they think, they think in terms of the biblical worldview and the Bible. I don't think that's too controversial, right? I think that's a safe place to, to go, to, to launch off from. I think it's the same for John here. And Wellen goes on, he talks about how the Old Testament informs the theology of the Word and Word of God in three areas. And we're going to read some passages here. This is where we're going to get started on reading. So, the Old Testament really does give us a very full theology of the word. And let's talk about those three let's talk about those three categories. First is is of course what this passage alludes to. What's this alluding to? What what book are we to think of here? Genesis. Genesis, right? So let's go there. Let's go to Genesis 1. All right. We'd like to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Genesis 1, 3. Anybody? Out loud. Thank you, Mike. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay, so what happens here? God does what? He speaks. Right? And God said. And what happens? That the light was good. Light was good. 
Does what God speak? Is what God speaks, does it happen? Yeah. Absolutely. Verse 6. Someone else. Same chapter. And God said, Let there be one man, and the midst of the water, and let it divide the water of the water. And it happened. God speaks. Okay. Then you have verse, just, just take a look. You don't have to keep reading, but verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. And verse 14, and God said. And verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. Verse 26, and God said. God's word creates reality. When God speaks, there is no other option. It must happen. God's word creates its own reality. Let's go to one other. The, the Psalms echoes or alludes back to creation quite a bit. Let's just go to uh, Psalm, uh, just another one, 148. Psalm 148, verses uh, 5 and 6. This is talking about the sun, the moon, and the heavens, and the waters uh, above the heavens, praising the Lord. And then verses 5 and 6. Someone read Psalm 148, 5 and 6 for us. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, commanded that they were created. He hath also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. Amen. Thank you. So yeah, so God speak, commanded, and creation occurred. Right? God's word is seen as powerful and effectual. It brings about what it intends to accomplish. Another category that the word has a very, very rich theology on is revelation, redemption, and judgment. God's word decrees, reveals God Himself. It reveals, it redeems. And it judges. Okay. Now, going back to the book that this is alluding to. Does God reveal judgment through His Word in this book, in Genesis? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes the softball questions are, are not like, they're not curveballs, you know, like they're, they're right down the middle, right? Okay, when? When did God do this? Banishment from the garden, the fall. Absolutely. Another place. Three chapters later. The flood, right? Genesis 11. Tower of Babel. Right? And continually, yeah, several examples of the word revealing judgment. Let's talk about redemption. Genesis 12, verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I have chosen. Okay, so God is revealing Himself to Abram, but also He's getting redemption going with this, isn't He? Because we know where this story goes, right? He sends Abram, 
right, to a, to a land that he'll show him, and he makes him these promises, and he fulfills them, although there's, uh, Abram's still awaiting fulfillment of, of those, as the Word of God, I think, makes some of those, as the Word of God makes clear. But God reveals himself in his word. He reveals his redemption in his word. Let's go to a, a, a psalm in the Psalter that really talks a lot about the law of God and the word of God. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And we'll just judge, we'll just, just look at several of these verses, how they pop out, and how they reveal, how God's word reveals himself. Psalm 119, and see how, and see, let's see what the word does here. Psalm 119, verse 9. Someone read that. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to his word. Amen to that. All right, jump to verse 25. Someone read 25. Our soul clings to the dust. Amen. Verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Oh man, this is getting good. Verse 65. Do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. Amen. Verse 107. Suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Great. Someone we haven't heard from yet. Verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right. Verse 169. Let my cry come before you, Lord, give me understanding according to your word. Verse 170. Read that too, Jeremy, if you wouldn't mind. Let my plea come before you, deliver me according to your word. So you see this emphasis on the word. It delivers, it brings life, it heals, it reveals God Himself. The word is a foundational piece of Old Testament theology. And there are several passages we could read about judgment. Uh, take the time to do that. But I will have you read just one more. Isaiah 55. And we'll put our finger there because this one's important. Not that they're not all important. Of course they are. But Isaiah 55. Verse 11. Someone read that for us. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. Amen. Keep your finger there. That's important. So, the word in the Old Testament, it, it, it reveals its creation. Then you have kind of the broad category, in my mind, broad category of revelation, redemption, and judgment. And then you have eternality. You have the eternality of the Word of God. I had to flip away from Psalm 119, so I'll just read this passage. Psalm 119, verse 89. Talking about the eternality of the Word of God. Verse 89. 
Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The word of God is forever. So we have the word of God. It creates. It reveals God. It redeems sinners. It judges the ungodly. And it's eternal. Man, that sounds like an awful lot like somebody I know. Doesn't it? And that Isaiah 55 passage, um, John Scholar, Andreas Kostenberger, he makes much of the verse. Let me just read this quote to you about Isaiah 55, uh, 11. And he also references uh, Isaiah 40, verse 8. Most critical in this regard is Isaiah's depiction of God's word as going out from his mouth and not returning to him empty but as accomplishing what he desires and achieving the purpose for which he sent it. In this passage, Isaiah provides the framework for John's sending Christology, which presents Jesus as the Word sent by God the Father, who pursues and accomplishes his mission in obedience to the one who sent him. This sender-sent relationship, in turn, provides the paradigm for Jesus' relationship with his followers. So break that down. Isaiah 55, 11, we're talking about God's Word going out and accomplishing what He says, right? He is sending His Word to accomplish what He wants it to accomplish, right? Like in, the, like in creation, right? God spoke His Word, did it come back to Him void? No, we're all here because God spoke. The point He's making is that this verse gives John his framework for his Christology in the book. For his view of Jesus. That just as God sent his word out and didn't come back to a void, the Father sent the Son to accomplish his word and it didn't come back to a void. And just look at John and how many times you see the word sent over and over and over over and over. Illusions. Those who bathe themselves in the Word of God <coughs> and know that we're well, they'll jump off the page at him and go, ah, I know what John's doing there. That's why it's so important that we come to the text knowing that these authors are bathed in the Word of God. Their minds are soaked in the Word of God. And they're picking out stuff all over the place. And the more we read, the more we study, the more we go, I see what he's doing. Let's just look at some of these sending things. We're definitely not going to get to verse 13, I don't think. (laughs) Um, Look, he mentioned, this scholar mentions two passages. I think we should look at these. Let's look at John 17. Look at John 17. Remember, John has in mind this the Father sending the Son, and this is the paradigm that Jesus uses to send out His followers. Look at this sent theology in the book of John. John 17, verse 18. Can I have one of you brothers read that? As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Right. Talking about his apostles, right? His disciples. John. Let's go down a few uh, other chapters. John, chapter 20, verse 21. 
This is a great commission passage that doesn't get as much fanfare as Matthew 28. But it is a great commission passage. Uh, John 20, verse 21. So we'll read that for us. Right. So, Jesus sends out His disciples, His followers, in the just like what? His Father sent Him. Oh, there's a lot of application there. What is Jesus' mindset as one who is sent by His Father? Save the lost. Save the lost, right? Let's look at a few just examples of John's descending Christology that, that we've been talking about here. Let's go. Let's just let's just flip through John. Just a few. There, I only picked out a few. Trust me. <laughs> I'll give you John chapter three, verse thirty-four. There's a John talking here. It's it's. I think this is probably the Apostle John's. Uh, Speaking here, of course, through the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist has just got done talking about Jesus Christ, about how Jesus must increase and how he must decrease. But John 3, verse 34, someone read that. Okay. For he whom God has sent, who is that? Jesus. Speaks what? The words of God. For He gives the Spirit without measure. I think this is commenting on Christ being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus walking in the life of the Spirit under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit without measure. Without limit. John 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the work of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. What nourishes and sustains the Son of God's soul on this earth? The Word of God. Word of God. What's this verse say? My food. What I eat to sustain my life is doing the will of the Him who sent me. We're made for this, men. Amen. We are made so that our spiritual food is to do the will of Him who sent the Son. And to do the will of Him who sent us. And make no mistake, Jesus sent us. He sent the apostles. We are the fruits of the apostles' labor. It applies to us. Another verse, John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own. 
Great. John 6, 29. Someone read that. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. John 6, 38-39. For I have come down from heaven not to do My will, but to do the will of Him who sent Me. And this is the will of Him who sent Me that I shall lose none of all those He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Bam! Thank you, Jesus. John 17, 3. This is the last one we'll read on that. And this is eternal life that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If Isaiah 55, verse 11 is the framework for John in his sending Christology, how the word that God sends out his word to accomplish his work, and it doesn't return back to him void. Of course it makes sense Jesus is described as the word. Doesn't it? Of course John is thinking in terms of the, old, the biblical storyline in the Hebrew Bible. Of course, it makes absolute sense that Jesus is called the Word here. He's sent by the Father into the world to redeem sinners and to return back to Him and say, I've accomplished my work. Jesus is the Word personified. He is the ultimate Word. So we covered the first half of the, the first third of the verse. Isn't that great? All right. Moving on. Any questions on any of that? The word was with God. Now what's that saying? The son was with the father. The son was with the father. Anybody else have anything to add to that? That created. What's that? It was not created. Begotten, not made. Right. And next week we'll talk about why that word begotten is very important. And how we should not lose that in our theology. And a preview, the church fathers know more than us. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Was not created. Amen. Was with the Father. Anything else? How about that He's not the same as the Father? You see how the verse distinguishes that? Right? He was with God. It doesn't say He's God. We'll get to that in a second. Because He is. But there is a distinguishing factor between the Word and God, who refers to here as the Father. Any questions or comments before we move on? All right. And then the last. Oh, yes. I've always wondered the uh, everlasting Father quote, I guess, is in Isaiah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's Jesus, right? Yes. Um, thoughts about that? Uh, I need to put them together. But <laughs> yes, yeah, it's it's um oh if 
Yeah, I'm recalling it. Father eternity would be a way to, to say that. Basically, the idea that Jesus is eternal. Right? I think there might even be an idea of Jesus being like Lord of eternity. Kind of a thing. Um, I have to look more into that. But yeah, that's not calling him the Father. But I'm sure you know that, but that's a good question to ask. So. Okay, any other thoughts? Well, there, there's, yeah. uh, there are places in the Old Testament where there, there is a, a, a person that is God but not God, uh, you know, reference. Uh, you know, and there's a, a distinction of, of persons where, you know, the Lord talks about God in, in, in the third person, you know, and... I think that uh, there is that that, uh, that that is in the Old Testament, but it's not really clearly defined like like it is in the Old Testament. Yeah, progressive revelation, right? The Lord continually to reveals more and more revelation as the biblical storyline goes on. Yes, but there is the seed in the Old Testament of there being more than a plurality in God. Not in essence, but in person. Any other? This is good. Any other thoughts, comments? Yeah. So, I heard recently someone saying that it would be heresy to define the Trinity as like co-equal parts of God, but not then as persons. Which I feel like I kind of understand what they're saying, but how does that? What is the difference, I guess, between that? So saying that there, uh, there are three persons, but it's not three parts of... Or is that not really clear? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, I... Uh, well, anytime you get into the Trinity, you, you know, you automatically... It's sort of like, it's sort of like those pools, you know, where... Like you're in the shallow end, and it's a pool where they just have that kind of steep drop, you know, in the, in the deep, and you just step in, woof, over your head. Yeah, it's like that. Um, and anytime you talk, you're dangerously close to heresy every time you open your mouth about it. Um, we'll get to more of that next yeah. week uh, about the, the Trinity and the relations and all that. But yes, parts is heresy. There's no question about that. Parts is heresy because it, it's like if you add them all together, they add up to one God. Right. Yes. And so therefore you diminish the deity of one of them. Oh. Right? At least to say to say that. Right? And I you think you also kind of war against monotheism there too. Mm-hmm. I mean there's there's a lot that's going on with there, but yeah. So yeah, there's there are Three persons that are God, but there is only one essence, right? And the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit, the Father is not the Spirit. But the Word of God says they're each one of them are called God. And if you remember too, these Jewish people learn their lesson about polytheism. God stripped them from their land and exiled them because of their polytheism. They remembered the lesson. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
is seared into their minds. So when Jesus is coming around saying, I'm God, and he does in a way that they would know, they'd better be right about it. They don't take that lightly. Which goes to the last part of verse 1. And the word was God. Now, of course, I think most of us know of a cult that messes with this verse. Which one? The witnesses. The witnesses, right? What do they say in their new world translation of the scriptures? How do they translate the last part of this verse? The word was a God. The word was a God. So number one, the foolishness behind that is the fact that Jews are strict monotheists. I wonder if they ever think about this. Like, like, again, like we said before, like they learned their lesson. Now, of course, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses would say that, you know, he's the highest of all created beings and so forth, so maybe that's what they're saying, but <laughs> Jewish people never put anything on equality with God, ever. So that's just an ignorance of their own of the own Bible there. But and I have to tell you, <coughs> the writer knows what he's doing. He knows his language and he knows exactly how to express what he wants to express in exactly the way he wants to express it. Uh, we don't. Oh, brother, can you flip to the next slide? This is it in the Greek. This is where, and so if you look, the last line, this is the line we're focusing on, right? Kai theos in hot logos, right? There is a Greek rule that we're not going to talk about, but theos there, that's the second word, that's God. That's the word for God, okay? Then was, you know, the word. The way this is written is in such a way that it doesn't have what they call what they call a definite article, right? And a definite article, for any of you people who actually remember your English classes, can anybody give me an, an instance of what a definite article is? The. The. There's no the there in front of theos. So the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, ah, you see... It's not talking about, you know, Jesus is not God, so that's where they say, because it doesn't have that, it's a God. Well, first of all, that's kind of a, that's a, that's a weak foundation as it is. But second of all, in this type of construction, a lot of times there's not a definite article there anyway. And if there was one, we would drift into heresy. So think about this. Let's, would you mind going back, brother, for a second so we get the English in front of us there? So, if, this, if the article were there, 
And if it were to say, and the Word was the God, what problem would we run into? That's modalism, Patrick, for any of you who are familiar with the YouTube video. Um, <laughs> why is that modalism? Because it would be essentially saying that the Son is the Father. Yep. So the modalism is the heresy that there are not three distinct persons in the Godhead, but there is a God who is in different modes, hence the word modalism. Another ancient uh, word for the ancient heresy of Sabellianism. Uh, the United Pentecostal Church are modalists. They believe this. That essentially, that there's no difference between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It's just different hats. Of course, who's Jesus prayed to in the garden? But I digress. So if you have the article there, you go into modalism. Saying that Jesus is God the Father. And then we just drifted off in the heresy. Yep. You don't need the definite article to refer to particularly to God here. The point here is that John is saying that Jesus is deity. He is God. God, but he's not the Father. I quote Greek scholar Dan Wallace, the construction the evangelist chose to express this idea was the most concise way he could have stated that the Word was God and yet was distinct from the Father. That's the point. John knows what he's doing. Hey, you know, if, if there's a horse I can, I can beat till it's dead, I'll beat that. The author knows what they're doing. <laughs> we just have to figure it out. And that's the fun part. Amen? And, and it's the fun part to learn how to apply it. So right off the bat, John, first verse, Jesus is high and exalted. He's eternal. He was with the Father from before the beginning, and He's God. Thoughts, questions, comments? Yeah, uh, yeah. a couple things. One is that what Jehovah's Witnesses try to do is they try to superimpose our English understanding of articles onto the Greek language. And they're trying to say that the way we use our English article is the way the, the Greeks use theirs. And, and that's a serious problem because in Greek it's very different. Uh, so they're saying the absence of the article, well, that's just like in English. If we don't have a definite article, then it must be the indefinite. So, yeah. so, and so anyway, that's a problem. Of, that's a, a, a mistranslation. And you try to say that they use the article the same way we do in English. Right. Uh, but the second thing is that you know, I've read a, a good deal of their literature, and and uh, from what I've seen, they think that when we say Trinity, we mean modalism. They think we're trying to say that the Father, the Son, is the Father, and, and that is not true at all. And, right. and so, when speaking to them, they they will often try to 
point out the passages that show a distinction between the Father and the Son, like the, father, the Son praying to the Father. You know, and, and so what, when, we, when we talk to them, we have to, to make sure that they understand. When I say Trinity, I'm not saying that the Son is the Father, that the Father and the Son are different persons, but they are one God. Amen. You're like, well, that, that's hard to get your mind around. Welcome to the club. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> it's hard, but it's true. And so just real quick, we'll just do verses one, uh, 2 and 3. If you don't mind flipping a couple more slides, brother. One more. Real quick on this slide. Yes, sir. <laughs> a little Greek lesson for me, please. Um, the, the word for God in, in those two, the last two lines there, they're, they're written slightly differently. Why is that? The case. Okay. Basically, the case. The part of speech. Yeah, the part of speech. Yeah, thank you. The part of speech. Okay. Basically. Yep. Yeah, yeah you've got the... Are you curious about that? No. John, or John was making a distinction there between God the Father and God the Son as well. Like, I, I didn't know. That's why I was asking. Yeah, it, Greek is a, a, a language where you change the end of the word to show what part of speech it is, whether it's a subject or of a preposition or the direct object, things like that. And sometimes you put stuff in front, too. <laughs> which, is, which is fun. It's a lifelong journey. I forgot the whole lot. But anyway. Uh, he was in the beginning with God. So again, talking about the Logos, Jesus, he was in the beginning with God, just reiterating part of what he said in verse 1. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. What's the point here? He didn't speak it or create it. What might be done? Yeah. Who actively created all things in this universe according to these verses? Jesus did. So when you read Genesis 1, who's there creating? Jesus. Jesus is. His copyright, his trademark is on every piece of the physical universe. Amen. Every piece of the spiritual universe as well. His signature is everywhere. And because he created all things, how much of this universe belongs to him? All of it. All of it. All of it. Right? All of it. Which means it all belongs to him, and who has to say? He does. Who has the ultimate authority over this universe? Jesus. And then if we serve this king, we serve the one who controls all things. Who rules all things. This man is not just a good teacher, as C.S. Lewis, right, who talks about. Either, either is who he claims he is, or is he not. Amen. We know that he is. We'll talk more about 2 and 3 and some implications of that, but we are definitely at time. Um, I would ask for questions, but I just said we're at time, so that would be a little disingenuous. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together, and I pray, Lord, that you would um, uh, let this truth sink deep into our hearts that the Son is God. And that our Savior is not some demigod or some highest created being, but our Savior is God Himself. And that as He, you sent Him, He has sent us. And there are great implications for that. And I pray, Father, that we begin to, to think through those. Bless our time of worship now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, God. Amen.